0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Medieval and we have a real treat today in our special guest, who is Matthew Harvey, author of the Benicia Chronicles. He's also just started a new series, A Time for Swords, that starts with the Viking invasion of Lindisfarne, which is a fabulous. Um, I think there's two novels in that series now. So without further ado, let's welcome Matthew Harfey. Matthew, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Hi Matthew. Hello, Derek. Uh, Let's let's start off, let's take you back to when you first started writing the Benicia Chronicles. It's set in Northumberland, it's set in the 7th century, before the Vikings, before Alfred the Great even. Why that period and why that particular area?
1: The simple answer is it's sort of a a bit random really, but I guess it, it was... As a result of different things, looking <laughs> back, I can understand, you know, why I ended up falling into that sort of place. And I, I guess the time specifically was because I saw a documentary in 2001 um, on television called Meet the Ancestors. And they were in Bamburgh Castle or just south of Bamburgh Castle. And they there was a burial ground there in the dunes or near the dunes near Bamburgh Castle, within sight of the castle. Um, and they'd dug up lots of skeletons, and some of these dated back to the 7th century. And they talked about Benicia and how Bamburgh Castle, as it was known, Bebenberg at the time, was the seat of the kings of Benicia, which became the northernmost part of Northumbria um, later on in history. And so that was why that period, I think it's just something about that documentary kind of sparked my interest but the reason I think it sparked my interest especially in that area was because I'd lived for a few years as a kid in Northumberland um, on the in fact on the banks of the Tweed oh yeah, yeah. in a little village called Norham and I'd been to Bamburgh Castle um, a few times so I, I knew the area and I'd loved the sort of coastline of Northumberland of Northumberland and so I felt some affinity with the place and the time just became interesting to me. I knew nothing about it um, back then in, uh, in sort of 2001. But I just started writing and then started researching and realizing there was this whole period of history that was very underrepresented in fiction and even in um, the history books, really, yeah. uh, as far as I could see um, in, in any great detail. And so I just um, started writing and then things things happened and that I ended up sort of f- falling into that period really
2: yeah I mean as you say I mean it, the area it's a fabulous area a nice area to go to to research as well
1: yeah I haven't actually done I haven't done a lot of research in person in Northumberland over the years I mean I sort of relied a lot on my memories and and in other research but I have recently this year or last year 2022 I've been up twice up to to that neck of the woods and it's been great actually revisiting some of the places that you know i remember yeah fondly and also that i've researched so closely as well over the years so it's been it's been great going back so i went to lindisfarne and in Bamborough, and i went to norham as well and the tweed and it was brilliant
2: as you said it, it's it, it's an underrepresented area of history as well what has always been called the dark ages how dark did you find it how difficult was it to research
1: Well, very dark. I think, in fact, I've written a few articles over the years and for blog posts and things about the term the Dark Ages. I know that historians hate it. Yeah. And now it's called the early medieval. But I think the term the Dark Ages is actually pretty good because I've argued the case for the term the Dark Ages for different reasons. But I think the lack of History of really contemporary history you know, written down at the time is is you know is, is part of that. So there's a real darkness in terms of actually knowing exactly what happened and to whom and and where and and lots of that is up for for grabs. We don't really know. I mean, things have been discovered all the time, archaeology and things, but yeah, yeah, there are a lot of gaps in in what I could find out. And the real detail, as far as I could work out, really was only the stuff in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is very scant. It's just a few lines here and there, and it was written a couple of centuries later as well, at least, mm. um, but. It's things like, you know, Oswald had a battle against Pender at, at somewhere and that's it, you know, and and, yeah. and Penda won or Oswald won or whatever. That you don't really get much more than that. No. And then you've got the Venerable Bede, who is writing only a few decades later, and he does write in quite a lot of detail about some of the events, but obviously it's all very skewed from the perspective of the Christian church and looking at, you know, how the events can be explained by, you know, the 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 grace of god and things like that so it's it's quite a one-sided conversation yeah so those are the two sources that i relied on most really i would look at for the benicia chronicles look at Bede, and then the anglo-saxon chronicle and then write around those sort of those main sort of events and take them as read that they were true as well so i decided early on that i would decide that you know what Bede said was true and those things had, had largely happened so even when he talks about miracles and things I i thought well maybe there's i can i can explain those things away but, you know, maybe I don't need to, but they definitely believe that those things happened. And so I can, you know, and when he says there was a certain events and battles and things, I would try to incorporate those as much as I could into the story. Yeah. Um, but the rest of the time, being such a dark period in terms of the, the lack of history, it meant I could make up good stories around the what we do know.
2: You should try the fifth century. That, that's even harder. <laughs>
1: I I imagine it is,
2: I had a reviewer once who said I would have liked more about the actual history of the period, to which I replied, so would I, (laughs) because there isn't any. No, very difficult period to to research.
0: Does the scarcity of sources mean you have free reign, or do you feel obliged to actually work out what might have happened and what the most plausible outcome would have been, or do you just think, oh, I'll just go with it, they they don't tell me, so I can just make it up? Uh,
1: A bit of both, I think. I think it's definitely... I was gonna say it's definitely a, a, a plus. I think it makes it easier in some ways to write about the period, because once I've done some research, if it's you know, if it's a, a picture, you can imagine a, a painting, it's kind of like the broad brush strokes are there from the sources, but the rest of all the detail I can sort of pencil in and you know scratch in. But I'll try and I'll I'll look at you know what people have written about things and what archaeology there is and try to come up with the most plausible um location for a battle, for example. And but then it's the question of you know, why do they end up there. You know, so there's a battle from Mesa Field, which supposedly, according to many people, um, took place in Oswestry, because Oswestry comes from the term Oswald's tree, <laughs> <laughs> Oswald is defeated there and apparently stuck on a tree or whatever. But but I decided after lots of sort of research and reading around the subject and looking at the different options that it didn't make a huge deal of sense that the battle would be there. And so I moved it somewhere else. And, you know, it's not, I'm not the first person to to, to think it wasn't there. Lots of people have, have posited other, other ideas and other locations. So I'll, I'll look at things like that and I'll, because you've got to come up with a, with a reason in the book for why do the people, why do the characters end up in that location? Yeah. If it doesn't really make a lot of sense, to, to me then I, I'll have to come up with a solution that does make sense so it didn't seem to make a huge lot of sense to for Oswald to be probing deep into into the Mercian territory almost into into you know, Wales so I you know I decided to, to move the battle and have the Mercians attacking into Northumbria yeah
0: it makes sense and it works
1: yeah I, I mean hopefully yeah, hopefully it works I mean I've had nobody interestingly enough I've had nobody write back to me and say that <laughs> it, it's total rubbish you know? And, you know often you get people writing saying well, I totally disagree with with this, you know, decision you've made or whatever, you, you sort of read a lot about that happening to, to authors. But in that case, about the location of that battle, nobody's written to me and said that they disagree with me. So I'm happy with that. I think the I think the um, it was the monks in Oswestry, um, some sort of few hundred years later, that decided that it was a good way of revenue revenue stream for them to say that Oswald had died there mm. in the sort of later medie- medieval period.
0: You find that a lot. It's like the monks at Glastonbury finding King Arthur and Guinevere just when they needed some money.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that's most surprising to me is that how many modern historians um, or, you know, history books just... Basically, just take it as read and just go. Oh well, you know, it must have happened here because we've got this place called Oswestry, so we're just going to say that this battle took place there because they don't know. Because there's no, yeah. we don't know. You know, because the name Mesafield doesn't exist anymore, so we don't know. So the names that are in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and in Bede don't relate to a modern place. It's very difficult to pin yeah, That
0: can be annoying.
1: Yeah, but I think the I think overall the scarcity of sources is a good thing. Mm. I think it means I have to do some sort of mental agility to try and work out, you know, how to to thread things together to make the story work. But at the same time, it does give me more free reign, uh, as long as it sort of makes sense.
0: Mm. So what is the most difficult aspect of writing in the early medieval historical landscape?
1: Well, if you're talking about the physical landscape of the medieval period... then that's uh, that's one thing if you're talking about sort of a metaphorical landscape i suppose that's something different but i could answer both probably the, the the physical landscape is quite difficult in terms of the, the the actual land has just changed a lot so obviously it's very difficult to understand what things would have looked like um what britain would have looked like or what any place would have looked like uh, rivers rivers have moved the coastline has changed forests have changed the types of trees have changed the types of animals that we have roaming around have changed buildings obviously have, have appeared out of nowhere bridges and things so all of that is a real challenge but i think trying to actually imagine and obviously researching as well but looking back and trying to to work out you know there was a roman bridge here at some point but this, my books are set a couple of hundred years after the romans was the roman bridge still there obviously the modern day bridges weren't there you know there's a medieval bridge built in the 14th century or something you know what what happened in between the roman bridge and the 14th century bridge and trying you know things like that trying to sort of maybe the, the information isn't there and I have to kind of just use my intuition or a bit of, you know, uh, common sense, or whatever, and try and work out, you know, what people have done in the meantime. But um, th- I find that interesting. And I do a lot of research about the, um, you know, what native trees there were at the time because people, yeah, I often read in historical fiction, people mentioning animals or trees that didn't exist at the time. And it, it rubs me up the wrong way. Because like, the information's out there, so it's just a case of lack of research, really, that they haven't gone to that level of detail. And obviously, i have made mistakes and got things wrong. So, I mean, I'm sure there's things that I've written that people will be reading thinking, oh, if only, you know, he's, he's got that wrong. But And in terms of the sort of the historical political landscape or whatever else <laughs> we mean by sort of uh, the historical landscape I think the difficulty really of that is just understanding how people thought and and the interaction between different peoples and different religions and different countries and I don't think humans have changed very much um, over the years in fact probably not at all but our outlook to things and the way people interact and the way people think of things have and I'm pretty sure if we wrote something in a way that was 100 percent authentic to the times that i'm writing about it would be quite unpalatable to a modern reader so it's getting a balance of what feels real what feels authentic and what also will work for a modern reader i think is um kind of difficult
2: yeah
0: because you have to find something that's interesting to everybody don't you and the way bigger travels um to various places and things that would have been Unusual in those times, most people would have stayed in their respective villages and never gone more than twenty miles in either direction. But luckily, Beerbrand's a warrior and a good one, so he gets sent off on missions and things.
1: Absolutely, and it's a it's an interesting thing because I often you often see you know it's a very modern take on this um you often see lots of archaeologists and historians talking now about how you know Britain wasn't very isolated there was lots of travel between you know there was people coming from all over the place and people come from Turkey and from the south of Spain and from Africa and all over the place and we traded with all these places and it's true that that obviously some people had come from all of these places um and there's you know been been bones found and uh, of people from different locations in the British Isles um and also People from the British Isles have been found to, you know, to have been buried in in faraway places, and also the lots of trade goods that we know have come from all over the place. But the reality is, and I think uh, the, the this this modern conversation implies that everybody was travelling around all over the place. I think the reality is that was like one percent, or you know, very, or even smaller number of people that were travelling around. I don't think very many people were travelling around because we know. I mean, even looking back less than 100 years people didn't travel very far even within our lifetimes and um and we didn't have this sort of multi-ethnic world that we live in now and 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 people were very isolated and, and insular and i think it's it's interesting to kind of get that balance and, and and make it interesting to you know have the characters travel around more widely as you say and still keep it plausible
0: yeah, I loved the way you did in Forest of Foes. You've got Bierbrand on his band, travelling to France. And of course, Beerbrand can't speak French or whatever they spoke then in those days for French. Yeah. And I love the way he learns it throughout the book. Because <laughs> I remember I lived in France for six months and I was exactly the same. You go there with very little confidence and it builds up as you go.
1: Well... I'm glad you, you I think you're the only reviewer that's picked up on that but um I, I yeah I think that's part of the way I I think is I try to think of the reality of the situation and even then it's simplified because as you say you know what language did they speak there were multiple languages spoken in France um just as there were multiple dialects of different languages spoken in, in Britain at the time and I, I put in the note at the end that I've decided to say they all speak a, a, a single language or at least Everybody from all the regions of Francia can understand, you know, each other because otherwise it just becomes too complex. But I have, you know, I do think about having someone who can actually translate because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. You know, Bayerbrand, a, a a guy born and brought up in, kent who then travels to northumbria and lives most of his life there traveling to france wouldn't suddenly be able to communicate with the with the french i mean he can't read or write or anything so he's definitely not educated enough to be able to i mean he could pick up the language if he lived there obviously he's not an idiot but um (laughs) so he does you know throughout the book he picks up some words and he learns a few bits and pieces the same way as if you went on holiday to a foreign country for a few weeks you might learn how to you know order a few beers or whatever that's kind of the level of um, of his language but I lived I lived in Spain for many years and of course I went through the process of learning a foreign language and obviously I know you can learn a foreign language and get bilingual and you know get fluent in it but it takes time and and a certain level of natural aptitude as well so I've got in the in the other series in the Hunlaf books the Time for Swords series the third one is um, a day of uh, a day of reckoning which I'm, I'm just editing now actually and in that Hunlaf goes down to um, Islamic Spain and um, he's picked up some of the language I've, I've had to explain that in the intervening couple of years between A Night of Flames and A Day of Reckoning he's been basically having language lessons from an Islamic thrall um, who, who's, who's in his band? Who's been basically teaching? Him. But he's Hunlaf is a monk, and it's already ascertained in the first book that he's got a great affinity for languages. So he's already he can speak Norse. He can speak um, obviously his native English. He can speak Latin. He can read and write Latin and Greek. So for him to pick up arabic is not unbelievable so but but yeah i've had to sort of write that in and explain it a bit and even so when he's there throughout the book there's lots of times when i have these scenes where you've got they're like creeping around in some sort of uh battle situation and you've got there's a norseman there's some english men welshman there's Hunlaf, there's a
2: joke in there somewhere <laughs> yeah
1: probably and and there's some there's some arabs and there's a frank there's all these people together. And of course, there's sort of a couple of them can speak Arabic. So they speak to the Arab guy. And then the the the, the English people are saying, what do they say? You know, I don't have to write it in because I, I hate the idea <laughs> that it just wouldn't, you know, I, I try to put myself in that situation and think, well, you know, you'd have to ask someone to translate. And it, I try yeah. not to slow the, the, the conversation, you know, try not to slow the book down, the action down, but you need to kind of have something in there that just is a nod to the fact that they can't all understand each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same with travel because travel took so long in in earlier times. Well, even as you said, hundred years ago, that the main form of transport was on your feet, basically. So, in a book, you you can't allow that amount of time that they would have taken to get from A to B. It would be extremely tedious.
1: Yeah, or or you or you. You can, but you need to write something that happens around it. Or you kind of do one of those, you know, uh, two weeks later, you know, we arrived in Rome or whatever, you know, so yeah. you can, <laughs> I suppose you can kind of gloss over it. And in fact, Forrest of Foes, the ninth Venetia Chronicles, as, as Sharon said, is all set in, in France, in Francia, um, because they're traveling to Rome. But I'd never anticipated before starting that novel, before sort of planning that novel out in detail, I'd never anticipated writing about the travel through Francia. It was just going to be a book about Rome the next book but then as soon as I started researching and as you say you have to travel all the way down and searching the roots, and I discovered certain interesting historical events that happened at that time and I thought and to to the some of the characters I thought well I have to write a novel around this I can't just sort of not talk when 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 one of the actual sources from the time which is the the life of St Wilfred throws up certain specific events that happened to Wilfred in France at that time I thought I can't ignore that that you know this has been given to me now on a plate I have to now write a novel (laughs) around these strange events that
2: yeah it's funny how that happens isn't it that novels get hijacked a little bit as you go into the the subject more
1: yeah absolutely I think with historical fiction maybe more than any other because as soon as you start reading around the specifics of the subject you think oh I can't ignore this
2: no no well, I mean, you started off you started off uh, with Bearbrand. Is there any of you in Beobrand? Do you identify with him at all?
1: Well, Bearbrand is, you know, big strapping warrior um, <laughs> who all the women fancy and he, he can sort of win in any battle. So obviously. So you could be twins. <laughs> obviously um he's identical to me no i i actually um no i think he's obviously i think i think most well i don't know i can only speak for myself i think probably i identify with certain aspects of most of my protagonists i guess you put some of yourself in or i put some of myself into all of them yeah yeah i don't know it's an interesting one i think um, the, the closest i'll say is is so i don't think i'm anything like him in terms of character really i mean he's got a he's got terrible Anger issues, and he's had a horrible childhood um, where he was abused. And my childhood was not like that at all. It was idyllic, and my parents were very nice. And so, I, so really, <laughs> um, he's he's the sort of the, the typical um, troubled, you know, flawed um, character, really, um which is which is unlike me. But I do yeah. realize that I, I realized actually years after publishing the first book in the series, The Serpent Sword, that. There were there were certain elements of it, and I, I don't know how I hadn't thought about this before, but there were certain elements that were very autobiographical. So mainly in the fact that I had moved up to Northumberland as a child from Sussex, um, and I'd been bullied um, by the, the the school kids. You know, some of the some of the boys at school had bullied me because of my accent. Yeah. And then I thought, well, oh, it's interesting. I've created this character who's gone from Kent, so very close to Sussex, up to Northumberland. And he's only gone from Kent specifically because there were links to the Kentish crown. So it sort of made sense, you know, otherwise I maybe would have had him come from Sussex. I don't, know. Yeah. but, um, um and, and he goes up there and then he sort of, you know, falls in with different bullies and horrible people. And instead of getting his head, kicked in all the time you know he turns around and fights them and you know ends up killing all his enemies And i thought i wonder if that's just me living out some sort of a fantasy <laughs> of what i would have liked to have done to these bullies yes oh, i yeah. don't know I, it was years later that I, I thought about this and there's other elements to it as well i think uh, that first book specifically i think is quite there's there's it was literally the first novel I'd, I'd written i know lots of people write you know novels that never get published this was that was the first novel i wrote yeah and um there are other things around it so Bearbrand falls in with this crowd of, I mean, he's only seventeen. He's very um, impressionable and doesn't really know what he's doing. He's out of his depth. He falls in with a horrible band of of brigands, really. After the first battle that he's in, and they're sort of roving the land in a sort of you know, outlaws, really, and doing horrible things. And I think that reflects a moment in my life when I was in my late teens and I moved out from you know, from my parents' house and I and I started sharing a, a flat with with another with a guy, an older guy, and. Not that we did any horrible things like that, but I think that influence of, and it, it, well, basically it became quite a toxic relationship and I ended up leaving after a few months and we had a big falling out. And and again, it was years later that I looked at it, and I realised that the Hengist character, this older um, charismatic character that Bearan kind of falls for for a while, was very much like me moving in with this guy who was much older than me and sort of, and, and, you know, I could see a, a fork in the road in my in my life where I, I made some difficult, there were difficult decisions that I could have made, and you know, I, I, yeah, I, hopefully I took the right decision, <laughs> but you know, it, it was sort of, you know, it, it got to the stage of I don't know, there were drugs, you know, getting, <laughs> I don't know, it was just, it was just a bad time, and I sort of thought, I rem, I, I distinctly remember looking back and thinking that is a moment in my life that I could have gone left or right, and I, yeah. thankfully chose the right way which led onto a path of you know reasonable success and normal life and getting married and having kids and I could have easily gone down the rabbit hole and gone a different direction and have ended up in a very different place and I think that's that's one of the things that kind of influenced that first book and Bearbrand having this moment of having to sort of face up to what is you know what what's the way you want to go do you want to turn into this horrible character or do you want to fight against it and in his case of course he fights against it and the rest is history but i know it's a difficult read that part of the book actually when he there's some really horrific things going on and bear Brand doesn't really know how to respond
2: yeah well talking of horrific things uh, what i'm quite interested to ask you obviously people die in your book some of them quite brutally some close to bear Brand as well now quite a lot of people die in my books as well so I'm interested to know how you decide who to kill and who not to kill
0: you see Derek decides it by oh Sharon likes that character so I'll kill them so
2: (laughs) funnily enough that's exactly the same way I
1: decide Sharon (laughs)
0: We pretend that I like the characters I don't like and I can get rid of them.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That's the thing. So you've told me now who you know you, you like certain characters, so you, you you better watch out for them, you know.
0: <laughs> I'm very worried for Kinnan. Is it Sinan or Kinnan? I'm very worried.
1: Oh uh, I well, I think it's I think it's Conan or Kunan, actually. Um Kunan. Yeah, probably.
2: Yeah. Right,
0: Kunan. Oh, I'll read it right next time then. <laughs>
1: um so really it's the same root as Conan. I was originally going to call him Conan, um, but I thought it was <laughs> there's two on the nose, so I changed it to Kanan. There's another r- derivative of that name. But, yeah, I don't know the decision-making process. I don't think there's a very – well, I, I, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> there's not a very in-depth decision-making process that goes on. I think there's certain points in the series, or in a series, any series really, where it feels – for the type of books that we're writing, and yeah. you know, that you write as well, Derek, that you know, lots of action and adventure and fighting – yeah. It feels ridiculous that nobody gets hurt or killed. And I've also, you know, looking back at certain books that I've read that have been very influential to me, for one that jumps out that I always mention is one of my absolute favourite books is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. And in that, loads of the main characters die throughout the book. But it feels, it's incredibly cathartic and, and sort of, you know, you 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 get very up, up, I don't know if cathartic is the word, but it's very emotional. You know, it, it it really hits you hard, but at the same time, it feels very believable and it ups the stakes for everybody else. It makes everything feel more real and more scary. You know, so I know that when certain characters have died in books of mine, people have said later, oh, I really thought that maybe this was it and maybe Bearbrand was going to die you know later on in the, in the next fight whatever and I think without that sort of jeopardy yeah of really yeah. important characters suffering bad consequences and potentially dying, it takes away the edge of the rest of it you know I think if one day there is a book where Bayarbrand actually is killed in the book people would be shocked, but they wouldn't be surprised it wouldn't it wouldn't come as like a total shock to them. I don't think it would be like, oh my goodness, this is impossible how could you kill him because he's in horrible Battle situations all the time, and, and people get
2: killed. No, I totally agree. I think it, uh, that's the that's the route I've followed, certainly. Although I must admit, I don't know whether this this happens to you, but I I do sometimes almost change my mind or reverse what I was going to do. I was going to kill somebody, and I decide not to kill them at the last minute, or even rewrite it.
1: Yeah, well, funnily enough, that has happened to me. I won't go into the details of the characters and because it would spoil things. But
2: no, no spoiler alert. But, but actually,
1: um. <laughs> in the first draft of one of the books my editor actually said this character that you've killed at the end in this in this fight you shouldn't kill because they deserve a better death in a later book which I thought was an interesting take. And when I looked back at it, I realised that, yes, it wasn't necessary for the stakes or anything. The stakes were already high enough. Somebody else had already died. You didn't, it didn't need, you know, somebody else died. I didn't need to kill off everybody in the in the group. <laughs> you know, it's, so I think the call was right from the editor. I think he'd seen that. I think he'd seen that, that you've already killed off some important characters. People have died. It's already pretty gruesome and gritty. You don't need to kill off people. And it was very much in the very, almost the last throes of the battle. And I think it was anticlimactic, even though that might be very realistic yeah. in that people do just get killed um, in real life in a fight. But but yeah, I think it was the right call. So that's happened. And I think in this very latest one that I've been writing again, I had a moment when I thought that I was going to actually kill a character off. And in the end, I kind of relented myself. So I think my first sort of synopsis, I'd sort of said they'd die. And then I, I came up with a different solution to things. So
2: Yeah. When we were talking to Ben Kane recently, he said he, he was, at the moment, he was actively trying to avoid writing too much fighting because he said there's only so many ways you can you can slice cut hack or whatever um and i sort of get that Uh, does that occur to you at all or are you happy to um yeah
1: well it definitely occurs to me that there's only so many ways of describing (laughs) detailed fights and i think sometimes I think it was um, Christian Cameron who writes, you know, lots of fight scenes mm. and he writes very well. And he obviously does loads of sword fighting and yeah. all of these things himself. So he knows it, all the sort of techniques that he was sort of saying that sometimes, you know, the best descriptions. I think he posted something on Twitter by or somebody else maybe did in response to his post about um, a, a couple of lines from a David Gemmel story. And David Gemmel does great. You know, He'll yeah. do blow for blow. Blow by blow, sort of you know, battle scenes. But then they'll have other moments when it, and I think this example is like something, you know, somebody entered a room and it said, two, two, two warriors rushed him, they died. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was, and I think there is a moment when if you've, built up enough action and there's enough description and stuff you don't need to describe blow for blow every everything and i think that um i can sometimes fall into the trap i think of trying to describe too much but i think not just in fights i think sometimes it it, it happens you know are trying to get sort of too much detail in every aspect of a story and sometimes you've got to step back and just say you know they they battled across the courtyard and killed you know several men and got to the other side you know you don't need to describe every single blow
2: yeah you have to sort of think what is actually the point of this scene what what, what you know yeah is it the fighting or is it actually that they get somewhere
1: well, yeah most of most of the time it's about them getting to the other side of things and you know how things affect them and then every now and again you want this really I, I suppose like in a movie you want like the final sort of you know the climactic battle scene you know which is kind of blow for blow or but, um you don't need it in every fight but but yeah it's interesting it's interesting to to hear that Ben's doing that and um,
2: I think after time we probably all do that <laughs> yeah
1: I've, I've done lots of things of sort of trying to work out what's the you know, trying to Make fights different, and so I'll always be thinking about you know what's what can change in terms of the landscape or the weather or the weapons used or the the different sort of situations. You know, can the warriors be injured in certain ways or be hampered in certain ways or have you know not have the right weapon or what whatever weapons snapping, weapons breaking. So there's all sorts of ways of thinking about yeah. making it different from other fights. So I, I get where he's coming from. That There's only so many ways of saying you, know, you stick a sword in someone.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, the other thing you can do, of course, is, is make the outcome the detailed bit. So you're not describing the battle, but yes, yeah. the, the way in which you describe the outcome gives a, a few hints as to how things unfold. Yes,
1: yeah. I mean, I have to say, I find the I actually find the battle scenes and the fight scenes probably the easiest parts of writing. If you had to choose, if I had to choose, you know, the bits that were going to be the easiest and fastest to write, it is the fight scenes. And so I, I so I tend to kind of dwell on them, yeah. I suppose, maybe more than I should, because I think, well, if I enjoy writing them and they're easy to write, then probably that translates into the, when the reader reads it, that they flow quite well.
0: So do you have a favourite character, Matthew? Mine was Senan, or is
1: it Chenan, a Achenan, something like that. Achenan. According according to the narrator, Barnaby Edwards, the narrator of the audiobooks, it's Achenan, and he's asked someone who's an expert, so he probably knows.
0: Right. So Achenan. And um, I still haven't forgiven you for that. I'm not going to do any more spoilers, but I haven't forgiven you for Achenan. So now it's Conan. I'm a little worried about his safety at the minute, but who is your favourite character? Is it Bea Brand?
1: that's interesting i don't know i I don't know if i've got a favorite character in the benicia chronicles i don't think it's beobrand i think um i've I've thought about this quite a lot actually when you've got a main character that is a hero um action character like beobrand sort of this flawed troubled hero that tries to do the right thing but it's always you know he's a bit not exactly boring but he's kind of the linchpin around which all the interesting stuff happens i mean he he's he's involved in all the interesting excitement but he's not the most interesting character to write um i think um i think that's probably the case in many books where you have like a warrior type character at the center of it um so i i would i probably i prefer writing some of the other scenes really um i have i liked in for lord and land the whole storyline with Conan, actually, I did really enjoy writing that. So there's a, t- a sort of double storyline.
0: I really liked that. I thought it was it was a nice change as well, because I wasn't expecting it.
1: Yeah, and I try and do different things um, to kind of excite me and hopefully the readers as well. And I know some readers said they didn't like that. Others said they really did like it. So you can't, you can't please everybody. <laughs> but I liked that, and I liked writing some of those scenes more I guess than the Bearbrand scenes in that book. But um but it's interesting because I because I always write chronologically as well. I don't so even though I'd done this split um narrative, I didn't write all of Conan's story and then write all of Beer Brands and then intersplice them. I literally I would write one chapter of Beyerbrand and then jump to the chapter of Conan and back, you know, and do it that way. Mm. Which I think kept it fresh. And it means that you try to move quickly to the next bit you know without getting bogged down or bored of it so um but i would kind of look forward to the kanan bits more and i wanted to to get to the next stage there so i did enjoy that i think i've enjoyed writing some of the the um some of the villains more um so hengist was great fun to write because he's horrible um <laughs> and i i think probably for the sort of the, the goodies um you know the the, the the characters i would probably say that i enjoy them I really enjoy writing Kenred the monk. Oh
0: yes. Yeah. He's always
1: he's always fun because he's you know he's he's more sen he's very sensitive. I mean Baybrand's quite sensitive but you know Kenred's sensitive but at the same time he's got sort of a bit of a hard edge to him. He philosophizes about things. But if I was going to say all of the characters that I've written who's my favorite I think probably Dunstan from um the Wolf of Wessex mm. actually. It's probably my favorite to write my favorite character really I think. I think it's probably um yeah it's probably my favorite character
0: is he going to remain a standalone then or are you going to do another one with Dunstan in because I did enjoy that book
1: <laughs> yeah well I uh, early on after just after finishing it I thought about writing another one in uh, and then my editor said well why don't you just leave it as a standalone for the time being because it's nice to have a standalone for people to jump in um mm. that want to sort of read your books and I think I think that's the right decision um and a lot a lot of people have discovered my writing through reading wolf of wessex a because it was successful and, and and you know got some press and things so it was it came at the right time just at the beginning of lockdowns in 2020 as well so but i think secondly because it's a standalone so i think it's quite daunting for people to look at a series of books and think oh i've got to read nine books and this you know they don't want to necessarily buy the first book in a series of nine or ten or whatever it's going to be in the end so so yeah I think it's I think it's I got to the point now that I'm a bit scared of going back to it and writing a sequel because I don't know if it would live up to the expectation that I or the readers would have so I think it might be best leaving it as a standalone but I'll never you know never say never <laughs> yeah but yeah it's a funny situation I never really thought about it at the time but now that a few a couple of years have gone by I do have that sort of anxiety thinking that if I went back to write another one would it be as good and if it wasn't, then you kind of tarnish the the first book, you know, you you kind of weaken the legacy of that of that character. And I think maybe it's best just to leave yeah. it as it is and just make it a great, you know, great standalone story that I'm happy with and most people seem to enjoy.
2: I mean, interestingly, when you'd written Serpent's Sword and you were writing the sequel, how how did you feel about writing the sequel? Did you did you think Oh, crikey, have I used all my good ideas up already? Or how, were you confident about it?
1: Um, yeah, I was a bit nervous about it, thinking that, you know, lots of my great you know, best ideas had already been poured out into that first one. But I think because I was following sort of historical events and also the Serpent Sword hadn't come out when I wrote the sequel. So that was, the, that was the interesting part of that. So my, at the time, I had an agent, and he was trying to sell The um, the Serpent Sword right. to publishers and, yeah. and failing. But during those few months, I was writing the sequel. So by the time I'd finished the sequel, pretty much I'd had all those rejections, but really it was written in the vacuum of not really knowing how the book was going to do, or how, lots of it was anyway. When I'd very first started looking at The Serpent Sword, I'd written um, a synopsis. Well, it was, it was, when I say a synopsis, a really high-level Sort of bullet yeah. points, almost of like yeah. you know, Abraham will go to this place and he'll fight so and so and he'll kill this person and this will happen and and he'll die at this battle or whatever. I had this kind of this this sort of plan and it covered his whole life until he was an old man and and I and I thought it was going to be one novel. So when I finished the Serpent Sword, when I realised that actually that was a novel length book and it had only covered six months of his life, I thought, oh, better start writing the next one. Um, which again covers just a few months. And so I had in the in my in the back of my mind that there were all these events that were gonna happen. And so originally I'd had that what happens with Hengist at the end of the serpent's sword was originally gonna happen in a completely different battle, which I'm trying to remember was I think it's the battle of Mesa Field in, in in um Warrior of Woden in the book number five. And originally I think I had that sort of confrontation gonna be taking place there, but I realized that to make the book a standalone, I didn't want to have a cliffhanger. And so to make it a standalone with a good, um, you know, proper ending, um, I needed to have a, a final denouement, a com- confrontation with the villain of the piece, rather than I didn't want him to linger and be sort of one of these characters that just lingers on as the villain throughout the whole series, because I find that a bit lazy, really. And although he's a great villain, you can maybe do it over a couple of books, but I think if it sort of spreads over multiple books for a long time, it does feel a bit lacklustre from the reader's perspective
2: yeah 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 you
1: can have the bigger villain you can have the big i don't know king or an emperor or whatever who's like moving the pieces yeah but i think the um the the individual sort of baddie that um that's the 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 main antagonist for the protagonist is is good to sort of have them have their comeuppance in some way
2: yeah Yeah, readers like
0: closure Yeah, I agree because, I mean, you get it on telly an awful lot these days, don't you, where you go through an entire series and then the end of the series is a cliffhanger for the next one. (laughs) Oh,
1: God. Yeah, and I think I I try to leave some threads that that people can pick up and want to read next, you know, where where they're going next, what they're going to do next, but you really want closure for the main story arc of that book, I think, and of that TV series as well. I agree with you Mm, on that as well. Yeah.
0: Right, so you have a new series now, um, which is, it has A Time for Swords and A Knight of Flames, isn't it? Yes,
1: that's Um, right. At the
0: minute. Set about 100 years after Beobrand's story, just over 100 years after Beobrand's story, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's
1: probably 100, 150 years after, something like that, yeah, because 793 it starts, and Beobrand starts in 7, sorry, 633, so it's 160 years between the start of each
0: so what made you start a new series that is 150 years after the first I mean I think if it was post 1066 people would see it as a totally different era and yet I think because it's pre-1066 it's sort of you look at it as all one period but it isn't is it it had changed things had changed by that point
1: yeah um I think I think I naively thought it was all the same period as well um, that's the re- the truth of it and so I was looking to write something new and I wanted to write something in first person just because I wanted to do something different so it's it's always about challenging myself as much as you know writing something else and so I thought I want to do another series um, I think I had a conversation with um, I think it might be with Angus Donald at some event and he'd said something like oh it'd be good he'd said he'd wished that instead of just writing all of his outlaw Robin Hood novels that he'd um alternated between those and another series and done sort of two series back you know back to back Mm -hmm. um alternating between them and i thought that sounds like a good idea i'm going to try that but um i was just too scared really to to jump to a completely different era and i'd written wolf of wessex which is set in 838 i think it is so that's early ninth century and i'd and that's again early viking age So I'd done a bit of research about that period and I was just a bit too scared to jump completely to a different era with all of the research that that would entail. And I just thought, oh, well, this is only 150, 160 years later. I can, you know, that's really, it's all the same. (laughs) Of course, it isn't the same. And
2: once I started- I can wing it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, basically. Once I started writing writing it and researching it, I realized that there are lots of things that are very similar. Um, But of course, all of the- the, the well elements around religion have changed and politics have changed. And, um, you know, and, and then I've got the characters actually traveling to different locations that I've never been to. Um, and of course, then you have to it's all the politics in that area and all the, the stuff that's going on in, in that place as well. So it's a whole nother tranche of, of things to, to research. And so I decided actually that changing to a completely different time wouldn't actually be that much more work. I think you once you start moving location, <laughs> like going out down to Islamic Spain um, in this third book, I've had to research and I don't, you know, I don't, my research is not that in depth that like I could go and do a degree on Islamic Spain or anything, but obviously you have to read around the subject and try to understand what's been happening over mm-hmm. the last few years and, you know, what's, what's going on there to, to make it feel, you know, authentic and get the right sort of lay of the land. And so I think really moving to any period in history would really have the same amount of of um up cost i guess to to me as a writer and having to research
2: yeah i think so yeah so will you do like
0: bernard cornwell did with sharp's son where he turned up in the um civil war books will you have a descend descendant of beer brand appear in <laughs> these books
1: well, well don't give you too much away i mean in in a time for swords which i'm pretty sure you've read but um there is a little mention of the fact that when he goes to Bebenburg, hunlaff actually says that he's heard yes. he's always been told that maybe you know he's a descendant of someone you know bayerbrand whatever so whether hunlaff is or not, I don't know, but his he he's come he comes from oenford um hunlaff does so um there, there's there's <laughs> perhaps and um in fact you
2: heard it here first,
1: yeah, so perhaps he is there's there's a reason why he, um, when the Vikings attack Lindisfarne, while this monk, seemingly sort of uh, you know pious monk, turns around and actually starts fighting yeah, them, the um, <laughs> and that's perhaps you know down to his DNA. And um, and if and if you look at all of the books, in fact, I think if somebody's really clever and looks carefully at all of the books, you could even find a thread through to Wolf of Wessex. And perhaps a link to Bearbrand, but I won't give that away because nobody's told me what it is. So
0: I'm gonna have to go back and read them all now <laughs> again.
1: <laughs> but um, but I have I've sowed the seeds in a pre in one of the Benicia Chronicles. I have sown the seeds of a connection to Wolf of Wessex so that people that are very you know, there's a tenuous link there, but people could draw the you know join the dots and say, Oh, I, I see that's how Dunstan is linked to Bearbrand.
2: Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. I like that
1: yeah so who knows so maybe if i write in completely different time periods i'll have you know characters <laughs> it would be like it would be like um uh, blackadder you know
2: <laughs> i'd be tempted to do that <laughs> wilbur smith did that didn't he uh he had the courtneys in earlier centuries he went back to that and so on so right yeah yeah, 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 yeah. it's possible it's possible i'm sure readers would like it
1: yeah i like having those little links in there there's there's a couple of links in wolf of wessex one when at one point they hear um some charcoal burners are singing a song and um i talk about the song and the song is um i can't remember what i call the song but it's a song about a couple of characters from the benicia chronicles you know so so there are things like that with little nods that if people have read the whole series they'll they'll get the links
2: (laughs) yeah yeah. I, I quite like Hunlaf I must yeah. admit, he's probably my favourite character of yours. Why did you I'm going off piste a bit here. That's okay. but yeah. Obviously it, it's a it's a kind of magnificent seven or seven samurai origin in a sense. Yeah. What made you do that? What why did you decide to do that? To use that uh, story?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I can't remember the moment that I had that idea, but I, I, actually I cannot remember the moment. I think it's just the fact that Seven Samurai is one of my favourite films. And when I started thinking about yeah. the book, I just thought, oh, you know, could I use that sort of, you know, the fact that it had been retold in a Western setting, I thought, well, couldn't it just be told? That's that sort of same type of story be told in a completely different setting. Yeah. And then when I had once, as soon as I had that idea, I thought, oh, you yeah, know, that works really well. And I, you know, I went back and I, I at the at early stages of that writing process, actually, I remember then becoming quite obsessed with Seven Samurai, and I watched the Magnificent Seven as well, and went off and and I even there was the there's a modern <laughs> um, Seven um, Magnificent Seven movies when I watched that. And I started getting really into it all. And I sort of thought, well, I know the Seven Samurai yeah. is the is the source material for the whole thing, the Kira Kurosawa movie. And so I I I watch, I watched that and I looked at it and I, I was really sort of analyzing it. And then I realized after a little while, I had a conversation with my wife, and she said, You don't need to kind of you, you don't want to just rewrite Seven Samurai as a as a novel. That's no. that's not what you what you want to be doing here. You sort of said you're inspired by it then just be inspired by it so that was very good advice from her and so i sort of stepped away i kept in one scene that that is a real homage to seven samurai <laughs> um which which is the the scene where in the seven samurai movie one of the samurai shaves his head to look like a monk yeah and he goes into he goes into a building to to rescue a, a child that's being held hostage. And I've I've kept something similar. And it's very much that's very much a nod to the movie. But apart from that, I thought you know step away from the film.
2: Yeah, yeah. And just I um,
1: get on with writing the book. You know, based on that sort of very that, that concept. There's a couple of other little nods in there. You'll you'll you, people would would see to maybe the Magnificent Seven early on in the sort of the, the bringing together of the characters. Yeah. At that point, it definitely becomes. Um, yeah, you know, my story and it's very much just a inspired by, as opposed to just a total retelling of. Or...
2: Yeah. I mean, what it does enable you to do is to, to invent characters from different backgrounds and origins, which reflects the kind of people that might've been around in the period, which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I liked the sort of motley crew idea. <laughs> of bringing people from very, and I like the idea, I think, you know, you've got the British Isles and I thought, well, hang on a minute, like you said before, but there's a joke there. So I thought, well, I can have a Scots, I can have a Pict. I'll have a yeah. you know a Welshman, I'll have an Irishman, I'll have an Englishman. So I, I did, th- and I thought, well, I'll have a Norseman, I'll have a Viking in there as well. And I thought I should probably have a female character as part of the, the Seven
0: as well. token.
1: <laughs> Not a Token. Not not token, she's not a token character in there. But I no. as I was sort of breaking down this whole thing, I, I mean, the thing is, the, the the likelihood of a woman actually fighting in the front lines in combat was incredible. Incredibly rare, and I mean, there's a lot of talk Mm -hmm. in this sort of revisionist history we get at the moment. Lots of talkers like shield maidens and things. I'm sure that there were a few, but but it's it must have been incredibly rare. So I had to sort of create this situation where there is this character who whose father had taught her to to shoot a bow very well, and so she can you know she can join in with the defense of the of the village. Um, But you know, she holds her own, and she's a proper tough tough cookie. Um, But But yeah, so it was, it was good just to throw and, and, you know, throwing a a woman into the mix as well. then you get that, that edge of, you know, do some of the, some of the character, male characters sort of, you know, fall in love with her and you get this sort of a bit of an unusual situation where her husband's like thinking, well, what the hell's going on here? Why are you spending all the time with these warrior blokes, you know? And, uh, because I, I thought that was quite realistic you know He suddenly she's like she's like i've got to i've got to help defend the town and he's like leave screw that screw that you know, not hanging out with all those rough warrior blokes come and look after the kids
2: you know and do and cook my dinner yeah <laughs> i did like that i did like that <laughs> i mean i remember you i think you've done a on the Serpent Sword, it, was it a concept trailer or with a view to a film? Has there been any development on that, or is that still sitting? Or can you not tell us?
1: <laughs> well, no, I can't. I can, I can tell you because there's nothing to tell. So yes, we did this. We did a, a trailer. If you, if anyone wants to see it, it's it's available online. You can see, go to theserpentsword.com or on my own web page as well. There's you know, it's it's up there as well. MatthewHarvey.com, and it's on it's on YouTube. So if you search for it, you'll find it. But um, so we put it together with. with it's, a, it's a long story, really, but to, to cut it down, basically we wanted to try to fund or, or get get funding for for making a, a TV series of the Serpent Sword, the Benicia Chronicles, really. With each book, you know, hopefully being a series, a season, as they, as they call it nowadays. And we 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 I worked with some really talented people and. A, a script writer called Greg Stewart who's also a novelist he's got novels out there so if you look for Gregory Stewart you can find his stuff and he's he writes plays and, and things as well we did a treatment of it and then he wrote the first the pilot script and and I was working with a with a, with a small production team in the south of Wales and we, we didn't have any money so we wanted to do something that would make it more um, accessible um, and interesting for prospective production teams or, or or streamers or whoever you want to pick it up so Greg wrote a, a script for the trailer based on the the first novel. Um, so in, instead of actually filming the nine hours of television and then sort of taking the best bits, we just wrote a script for a two minute trailer um, with multiple locations and all you know lo- a huge cast of characters. We got all the people together um we uh, filmed in multiple places all over the south of of Wales and south of England got original music scored for it and we got a BAFTA award winning sound uh, person so so she did the sound um, for it and it's so it's incredibly professional really well well put together for for basically no money at all filmed over sort of 7 days um, in early 2020 and, and yeah, i think it looks amazing it looks like there's some money behind it when there really was you know just a few hundred pounds and everybody did it for free really and then during lockdown we had lots of movement on it and in that we managed to speak to people that i don't think we would have been able to speak to normally yeah yeah because everybody was stuck at home that was an amazing moment but i think we were a little bit unlucky that we hadn't got the trailer ready just before 2020 i think if, if we'd got it right at the beginning of 2020 ready we didn't get it finished until sort of june and i think if we'd had it out and ready in sort of february march time yeah I think we probably would have sold it to a streamer because they were so desperate for content. They were all very worried about the content, and we managed to have those conversations. So we, we spoke to people from Netflix, we spoke to the production company that makes The Last Kingdom, um, and Downton Abbey, and all those people, and and um, we spoke to some people in the states. So we were speaking, we spoke to lots of actors and people. We, we we did a lot of really interesting conversations. We were speaking to people who were holed up in New Zealand waiting to film the Lord of the Rings series. <laughs> actors that said they would they would be happy to start you know to appear in it. And uh, we got you know we got an agent in the states interested but the reality is that it's, it's just incredibly difficult and after a long time and lots of sort of false starts it hasn't really moved anywhere so if there's anybody listening to this <laughs> that, that knows that knows a film producer <laughs> you know we still want to make it and you know there's the, the, the first couple of episodes are written there's a, a, a tv bible we've pitched to different production companies and and you know there's it's all there basically ready to go but um, obviously still a lot of work to, to be done but um, it would be great to see it happen
0: It really would.
1: I keep reminding myself that it's the books that's the day job. So you know, have to get on with the writing.
0: I just think it'd be nice to have some television, some historic television that isn't based around the Tudors. I like the Tudors, but they do seem to have have having sewn up.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. And and we were trying to, we would, we really wanted to make it historically accurate as well which is a real thing. And when we did have some of these conversations, it was a difficult conversation to have with, with different production people um, because we said, oh, we want this to be historically accurate. We, you know, it's one of the sort of things we want to do. And A, they don't really have any interest in that. And B, they think that what they're doing is historically accurate already.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and they're and quite surprised when you, you know, when you say like, the, you know, I, I, I very much, you know, The Last Kingdom, it's all great. It's great TV and stuff but there's no way that those costumes and the stuff that they do in the, it it doesn't look right at all. And, and and I don't really understand. And what I can't understand is why that is because it's not like the real costumes, the authentic costumes would cost any more to produce. Mm. And it's not like they wouldn't look good either. So what it's almost like a conscious decision to make it not real. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't understand that, that just sort of for for me just becomes like a, a really confusing it's a confusing question, which I've never really got an answer to.
2: Yeah. So if uh, if it happens, uh, have you got in mind an actor who might be good for for Bear Brand?
1: Tom Cruise, obviously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> really? He's too short. I was about to say, isn't he too short? <laughs> no, no,
1: no. no. <laughs> it was uh, that was that was a that was a joke about the Jack Reacher uh, movies. Yes, uh, that's right. So no, I think probably the real the the reality is, I mean, in the in the trailer. It was a a young actor called Liam Hatch, and he was actually quite short as well. But it's very, you know, he's he's a he's he's a personal trainer as well, and he's really really strong and fit. So you need to get someone who's physically able to do all of the stuff. I think is physically imposing, and really probably it would be a bit like the new Jack Reacher series, where you get an actor who has done some stuff before, but they're not. A household name but they embody physically the character more and i think you know Bearbrand could be like that you'd have to be big strong um imposing figure really yeah, yeah. and yeah i don't think he'd have to be a, a household name and i think think one of the things that actually would would work would be to have a cast of of unknown actors um in it who could then become famous
2: well of course utred was not uh, the actor that plays yeah Uhtred in the last kingdom was not by any means a household exactly
1: yeah i think you want to go that route where you get an actor that can embody the character um and then becomes famous off the back of it rather than you know a household name that that kind of brings their own baggage to it yes but it's an interesting thing because within within the industry of course it is those household names that get things made so yeah we were looking at the time we were talking to different actors and we were kind of thinking it would be great to get you know a famous actor in as a small role as a secondary character, you know, that we could maybe, you know, <laughs> I, I did toy with the idea of um, contacting Sean Bean <laughs> to be King Edwin um, as King Edwin gets killed right at the beginning.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's very good at that. He's very good at that. Yeah, because
1: I know, I know that, that Sean Bean, I think, has said that he hates, that he won't do it now because it's become such a, a meme. He doesn't like, you know, having these characters that get killed. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I did think it would be quite funny to get him on and then literally kill him in the first episode.
0: Well, you can have something like, say, David Dawson as Conrad. Mind you, he's a bit too
1: old for Conrad, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But, but again, you know, it's, it's about getting these. Um, I mean, again, David Dawson you know, is a great actor, but um, I don't think he was that well known, you know, when he did The Last Kingdom. Mm. Um, but yeah. then they, you know, they embody that that character so well. So yeah, casting interesting. We had a lot of discussion about casting. The Wolf of Wessex is probably the easiest one to make because it's a smaller cast. Yeah. And it's a and it's a isolated you know story. So, you could probably it's it's much more like sort of true grit, so you've got this main partnership of the the young girl and the older man
0: and I like the idea of um, Dunstan being an older man rather than a young brash warrior is you know he's got a good head on his shoulders. I like that about it, yeah, him.
2: I really liked that it was funny i um I had this idea exactly that idea about an older man. A young girl who comes along and so on and then i read wolf of wessex <laughs> and i thought blow me down there it is
1: well you know i, I mentioned true grit so it's not massively original Yeah, no, so no, no 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 i guess it's been done before and then of course um giles christian went on to win uh the wilbur smith um, adventure writing competition or, you know, award this this year or last year with a with a story i haven't read his book but the, the book is modern day but again it's a it's a, a father and daughter yeah. Traveling through the wilderness being chased by baddies, which sounded slightly familiar, you know. So I think it's a it's a it's a it, it works, you know, having an older yeah. character looking after the younger one and, and the, the, the growth of their relationship and, yeah, yeah, against adverse yeah. adversity. So I
2: I've moved away from that idea. Now. Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, if you're gonna set it in the time of the Vikings or something, then it might be a bit too close, but
0: I've got one more question though, because we haven't talked about the fact that you are a rival to our podcast, actually, in that you're doing Rock, Paper, Swords with Stephen A. Mackay, which is absolutely fabulous podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. What got you two? I mean, you work really well together, but how did you two come about doing that?
1: Oh, thank you for the for the nice comments. Really, I I don't know. I've never met Stephen face to face, apart from on Zoom. We've never been in the same room together. So we've only we we've talked though over the years. When I first started self publishing, The Serpent Sword, Stephen had just published his first one or two Wolf's Head novels. Mm. So just before me, and he he seemed to be the guy to, to, to watch, really, and to follow at the time. So I did sort of emulate lots of what he was doing in terms of, you know, the way he promoted himself online. And and we, I mean started talking to him online. You know, I'd answer his posts and we'd speak. And, and we yeah. ended up sort of talking a little bit via communicator a few times. And over the years, that just sort of became a more... It's funny, really, sort of quite organically chatted we chatted more and more via messenger every now and again we'd see something funny or interesting in the news or about other writers or something and he would post you know so have you seen this you know and, and we would sort of have a little bit of a natter and a laugh about stuff and we obviously got on you know on, a, on, a, on that sort of wavelength of sort of just joking about stuff and having a chat about things and then during lockdown I did a few um video live stream events because everybody was you know so desperate for content and just to sort of do something and I was so desperate to speak to someone else and one of them was and maybe I think might be the first one I did was with um was with Stephen and it was very relaxed and we really enjoyed well I think you know we both seemed to enjoy it and we had a good chat and people seemed to respond to it and so then I'd been listening to podcasts over the lockdown period started listening really then and um, walking the dog and listening to podcasts and stuff and so I, it's sort of been in the back of my mind that that would be a, I'd like to do a podcast and then but I didn't really want to do it on my own because I thought it would be a bit scary to be just the single you know, person. I sort of toyed with this idea of you know, maybe trying to do more for YouTube, do my YouTube channel a bit more. And I did a few more um, one-to-one interviews on YouTube and things. Mm-hmm. But I really kept on thinking that the podcast would be the way to go. And then what then sparked the coming together, actually doing it was then... Stephen early last year announced that he'd left his day job and was starting to write full time and so I thought oh well we're both writing full time I think he contacted me and asked me a question about something I can't remember what and I said and I sort of floated the idea because he was I think he was asking about you know what were my days like and did I find that I could write more or did I struggle to find the time and things and I and I think in that conversation I sort of said well one of the things it's it's quite lonely you know writing full time and I said it would be quite nice to do something in collaboration with another writer mm-hmm. um, um, and had he considered doing something like a podcast and i kind of floated the idea and then he was up for it and then at that point we sort of started discussing it and that's it the rest is history
0: i enjoyed the episode with christian cameron i thought you you guys i think learned a lot from that one
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we tried we tried to work out what was our sort of what were the things that we both enjoyed and what was what would make it unique. And we decided, well, you know, very much like um, you guys doing this podcast, um, you know, you're both in, into history and historical fiction. So you've got a, that your unique selling point is you're both published and successful. So we sort of looked at it and said, well, we're both successfully published historical fiction authors who write action and adventure so and we both like rock music I mean he he plays guitar and other instruments and he sings I used to sing in a rock band so we said we really have these lots of sort of commonalities there so let's just um Mm -hmm. bring those together and talk about all of those things and so it's been really interesting um And 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 again, like like you, we've got had some great guests on, but we also do some of the um, episodes, which is the two of us chatting about different topics, and we kind of just going with the flow, really, and seeing where 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 it takes us, and trying to sort of sit around these themes of rock music, a history, and action and adventure, and that kind of covers. Pretty much the whole gamut, really, of um, of what we enjoy. So we've had that crossover with music and history.
2: It seems to me, anyway, quite an original podcast in the in the combination of factors, shall we say, uh, which which I I rather like.
0: Well, thank you very much, Matthew Harvey. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you this morning. I've really enjoyed it. I haven't stopped smiling yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks very much for having me on. It's been been a real pleasure. It's really great. Always great to talk to you. Of course, I've met both of you before. Back in the mists of time, maybe one day. Yeah. We'll we'll meet again at an event or something.
0: Yeah. That would be nice. Thank you, Matthew. It's been absolutely fabulous talking with you. We really enjoyed it. Well,
2: thank you both. Yeah, thank you. I look forward to meeting up in the flesh at some point. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much. Okay.
0: So join us next time when Derek and I will be looking into Richard, Earl of Warwick. Um, whether he was a hero or a villain I know which side Derek's on you'll have to wait and see which side I'm on (laughs) thank you very much for listening today I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly
2: and I'm Derek Burks we hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll listen again soon goodbye